0: A few years ago, the worship team leaders and I asked you, the congregation, to write down on your connection card what some of your favorite Advent and Christmas songs are so that we could kind of build a, a bigger repertoire. And by far, your favorite song was Oh Holy Night, the one we just sang. I mean, just top top the charts. Yeah, there we go. Uh, and you're not alone because tens of millions of people have copied repeated this song, have downloaded it. It is one of the most popular Christmas songs of all time. As you know, during the Advent season, we have been exploring different songs, and uh, because we're no strangers to the fact that our songs, our media actually can inform us, right? They give us information, they evoke feelings, and so over the last few Sundays, we've explored O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, Away in a Manger, and The Hands That First Held Mary's Child, this evening, we get to treat ourselves to the glory communicated in o Holy night Fun fact okay O Holy Night was written in eighteen forty seven in France, but it didn 't come to the United States for another ten years or so, spreading slowly at first in just congregation by congregation and then it got published in a few music journals. but in nineteen o six something happened that would change the world and propel Oh, Holy Night, to unprecedented popularity. Reginald Fassenden, a professor at the U- University of Pittsburgh, invented a new type of generator that would allow a person's voice to be transmitted invisibly over the airwaves. Of course, I'm speaking of the radio. Anyway, Christmas Eve, 1906, Fassenden transmitted the first ever radio voice into the airwaves. And he read it, his words were the reading of Luke 2. So the first words over radio ever in 1906 were Fasendan reading Luke 2 over the airwaves. People all over the eastern seaboard heard what they could only describe as the voice of an angel coming across their simple telegraph speakers where there used to just be beeps and, and like Morse code type stuff. Now this voice is coming out reading the gospel. On ships near enough to shore, telegraph operators described the voice proclaiming the gospel of Jesus that came out of the air and into their hearts. After he read Luke 2 on the radio, he picked up his violin and played a song rooted in the narrative of Luke 2. You guessed it, O Holy Night. Would you stand with me as we read Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14? In that same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today... In the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Lord, thank you for this good news proclaimed to us from your word. And it captured in so many different songs, not least, O Holy Night. Do you guide us as we look at the truths of these words and how they have been sung tens of millions of times, influencing us and influencing the world. Bless you, Lord. May your influence go out. Amen. All right, Ruth, go ahead and put the first verse up. O Holy Night, the stars brightly shining... It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Verse one evokes an experience. It puts you and I at the scene with the shepherds. Close your eyes, think about it. See the stars against the black of night. Feel the the cold breeze as you're shepherding your flock under those stars. Smell the clean air until the wind shifts, and you smell the animals and the fact that you haven't bathed in a very long time. It evokes an emotion, tension. The world is broken. We're aware of our personal sin. And as those sins, these collections of seemingly small decisions, which join up and clash with the sinful decisions of other people, and then they radiate outward, extending, multiplying, and building, there's nothing short of a sin storm, could have been something else, that infects the whole world. It's in our leaders, it's in our followers, it's in our economics, and it taints our politics. We see it happening all around us, but we're usually so distracted and so busy that we feel powerless to change it. It's like humanity is traveling on a massive train, a train that over the years we have built car by car, engine by engine, each link in the chain a product of our own greed and pride and lust and anger and indifference. And it's going like 100 miles per hour. And it is so heavy and so powerful that we can't stop it. Even if we were uh, able to, uh, to stop feeding the engine somehow, we don't possess the power to overcome the inertia. Just imagine it has really good bearings or something. It's just going. And there must be an enormous amount of track because we've been heading in this straight line of destruction for thousands and thousands of years. We don't know how much track we have left but we do know that we're headed for a cliff. Could be tomorrow, could be next week, could be thousands of years in the future. The problem is so overwhelming when you stop to think about it. Plus, we get busy doing stuff on the train feeding it fuel, interacting with people that we meet on the cars, we clean the train, and we make food in the galley car, and we, by the end of the day, we're, uh, there's this feeling that we should do something to solve the problem that the train we're on is speeding towards certain destruction, but we're so tired, and that's all so complicated, and we have to get up and go to work the next day on the train. The whole of human society is headed toward destruction because of the results of our own sin, and we just accepted as the new normal we learn to live with this low level fear of anxiety reaping the fruit the rotten fruit of our error but then something happens right in the movies this is the point where the superhero comes and stops the train or rescues all the people And in in literature, this is the part where spring comes to Narnia that's been stuck in an endless winter with always winter but never Christmas. And in poetry, it's the volta that turns, the verse that turns everything around and hope breaks in. And in song, it is long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth, a thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Did you catch it, the truth in that song? Till he appears, till Jesus came, the God with us. We were without hope until hope put on flesh and was born among us on a starry night. Oh, holy night picks up on this tension and draws on the good news that's not only for the world, but for the individual. Notice the line, the soul felt its worth. You know, in a fallen world where we're used to being too critical of ourselves and others, in an existence of insecurity, where most people either go through life feeling like we don't measure up to other people, or we have a false sense of superiority, where we think we're better than everyone else, both of which are lies. And Jesus came to free us from those lies, among other things. His coming communicates our worth. Think of how valuable you must be for the God of the universe to empty himself, to be born in a manger, and then to give himself in death for you and for me. That is awesome. And so, may your soul feel your worth according to Christ. And the only proper response is to fall on your knees. I wish, actually, we had kneelers like Catholic churches do in this church. That would be so awesome. There's so many times when we should just be falling on our knees but I'm not 12 anymore and it really hurts. Fall on your knees, hear the angel voices, O night divine, O night when Christ was born. That's the proper response. Verse two, led by the light of faith serenely beaming, with glowing hearts by his cradle we stand. So led by light of a star sweetly gleaming, here came the wise men from orient land. Again, the song is inviting us to an experience, to experience the holy night that we're singing about, the night Jesus was born, the night God put on flesh and dwelt among us. In this verse, we're standing by the manger, the the cradle, as the visitors from the east complete their journey and pay homage to a newborn king. Even though we just sang We Three Kings, which was really fun, by the way, great job, um, there is no evidence that the Magi were kings or that there were three of them. It's a bit strange that we sing so confidently about details we don't know much about, like social rank of these Magi or their number, but we fail to sing about what we pretty much do know about from Scripture, mainly that they're pagan astronomers from the East, That doesn't really have the same ring, though, does it? Oh, pagan astronomers from the east. Okay. We do know in Matthew 2 that magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Magi were well known in antiquity. We know this not just from these little scraps of sentence in the Bible, but from all kinds of extra biblical literature at the same time period. These are people who could read the stars. Today, we might see them as a mix between astronomers and astrologers. In fact, I think I might have that up there, Ruth, the next slide. Yeah, so you see astronomy is this word that comes from two roots, the Greek word asteron, star, and namas, which means law. And so astronomy is a, a valid scientific field today. There's many Christians who, and Jewish people who uh, practice uh, astronomy, uh, it, it is the law of the stars, how the planets move together, um, gravity, all, all kinds of really cool stuff. It goes on to astrophysics and beautiful, cool things. And then there's astrology, again, from that asteron root star and Lagos for word. And this is a reading of the stars. It's more mystical. And definitely, this is the, the, the pagan side of it. And to Jews and Christians, it's a major taboo. It was linked to pagan idolatry. Magi are negatively mentioned a couple of times in the book of Acts. Simon was one of them and Peter confronted this guy. Paul also confronted a man named Elemas bar Jesus in Acts 13 for sorcery as well. And there's one more thing just to add uh, to all of this. The magi we're talking about in Matthew 2 were most likely from Babylon, the nation that had dragged much of Israel into captivity. If you're thinking up fictitious characters that might be the most unlikely to be at the birthplace of the king of the jews it would probably be these guys the magi how did they know about jesus what is even going on here there they are next to the manger and why why because their craft in studying the stars led them to see something special they were paying attention A sign that intrigued them so much that they embarked on a perilous journey of great length and danger from elements and bandits to come and see this newborn king. People have debated what the source of the star is. Some of the best evidence shows that in the year 7 to 6 BC, which is probably when Jesus was born, the planets Jupiter and Saturn were aligned. To the Magi, Jupiter was the star of kings and Saturn was the star of the Sabbath, or the Jews. So when they saw these two planets combined, they assumed that the the king of the Jews was coming. Just a side note that I find fascinating and informative. Why would pagan astrologers from Babylon know or care that the king of the Jews would be born anyway? Israel was just a nothing nation, under the thumb, one of many that was gobbled up by the Roman Empire, gobbled up by the Greeks before them and the Persians before them. It had been forever since Israel was even a player in the world scene. Why would these guys even care or know about the king of the Jews? Or why would they know about a prophecy about a king of the Jews? Anyone just want to guess? I know we have some very sharp students here. Could it be because when Israel was captive in Babylon centuries earlier, you had faithful witnesses like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. In America, we tend to have, and I know this doesn't describe any of us, but we tend to have Christians who either want to pretend that culture doesn't matter at all, so we just don't watch movies or shows or just do our own thing. Or we think it's our job to make culture into our own image and what we think God would really like, even though we really don't know in detail what that would look like. Might be why a lot of Christian movies are so bad. You know, and then we get people that are upset that people who don't follow Jesus actually act like they don't follow Jesus. But the scriptures compel us. They compel us. This is important. They compel us to walk a middle road. The road of faithful witness while in captivity. Faithful witness while the kingdom hasn't come yet. Daniel was a Jew who was captured and dragged to Babylon. And he was a member of the court of Babylon where he had the ear of Nebuchadnezzar the king. He was a political prisoner, and his vocation was his mission. His political acumen, his wisdom, and his quiet but countercultural devotion to God allowed him to do good work while being a good witness to God in his life. People knew Daniel was the smartest guy in Nebuchadnezzar's court figured out all the problems that his wisest advisors couldn't figure out, but they also knew he was a staunch God-worshipper. He was weird, but effective. We should be weird and effective. That's the middle way. There's got to be a better way to say that, but that's what I'm doing right now. The Magi of Jesus' day would have no introduction to the Jews had it not been for the faithful witness of people like God or or, the people of God, like Daniel, centuries earlier. And I just wanna say, you never know who's watching. You never know how your little life might influence others today, tomorrow, or centuries from now. Whatever the source, God used this star to guide the Magi to Jerusalem. It was there that they met King Herod in his court, and in his court, he had all of these Bible scholars. These scripture scholars knew that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem, and their knowledge of the scriptures led the Magi to Bethlehem. General revelation, that is the theological term for the natural world, right? Like if you see the natural, I I was uh, at this camping thing with a relative of Corey's one time, he's pretty, he's passed now, but he was a pretty staunch, not a God guy, we're sitting there at night, and he's like, knows I'm a pastor, and he's just like, I, I don't know about this Jesus. I don't know about church. Somebody made that. That did, That's not accident. You know. So that's general revelation. When you just, oh, there's more. To, there's got to be more to life in those moments. You know, uh, general revelation can lead us to to even deism, which is like, there has to be a God. You look at the complexity of the universe, it just leads me to believe there's something bigger than me and bigger and less random than a Big Bang. It's just gotta be something, right? That's general revelation. General revelation only took the Magi to Jerusalem. The scriptures brought them to Bethlehem. I almost said Bellingham, that'd be cool. (laughs) The Magi had willing open hearts, but that isn't enough to find Jesus. It can get you pretty far down the road, but it was the Bible that channeled their enthusiasm and led them to the truth. Another fun fact, the man who wrote O Holy Night was named Placide Chapeau. He was not a Christian. He was a French wine merchant, but in his parish, the parish priest knew that Chapeau, the wine merchant, was also an amateur poet. And he actually liked some of his work. And as is common back in the 1800s, a lot of people wrote with just biblical themes because it's what you had to deal with. It was everywhere. Church was everywhere. So even though this guy's not a Christian, the parish priest comes to him and says, hey, would you write a song for Christmas Eve Mass? And I wonder, just as a pastor too, I wonder if he's like trying to like get this guy more involved in the church. But anyway, that's, that's something I would do. Um, so this guy, Chapeau, writes the words to O Holy Night, not a Christian, but he, 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 he opens up his Bible, he says, well, it's going to be Midnight Mass for Christmas Eve, I'm going to look at the Bible stories, and so he, he reads Luke 2 and Matthew 2, and he writes the song based on those scriptures, but he's not a musician. And so he goes to his friend, who's named, um, where is he here, um, Adolf Charles Adams, who not only also was not a Christian, but he was a Jewish guy. But he was a composer. And so chapeau goes to Adams, two non Christians, and they write one of the most beautiful songs and most popular ever for Christmas. Two non Christians, a poetic wine merchant, and a Jewish musician. Two men who, like the Magi, had great skill gifted from God, and they had general revelation. But it was the Bible that led them to create this beautiful song about the glory of Jesus. We can know a lot of things in life because God has given us reason. And he's given us the general revelation of creation. But without scripture, we're at best groping in the dark, piecing things together with a very limited perspective. The scriptures are written on the one hand by human beings, fallible just like you and me, like just like they're people. And on the other hand, inspired by scripture, they have this divine human tension in them. Very much like Jesus is fully human and fully God. This divine and human tension. He's the God-man. He's the God who identifies with us so that we can identify with him. And this is expressed in the second half of verse two. The king of kings Lays thus in lowly manger in all our trials, born to be our friend. He knows our need, our weak to our weakness is no stranger. Behold your king before him lowly bend. He knows our need. He knows our weakness. He's no stranger to human evil and to human frailty. He doesn't just observe things from a distance. High on a glorious throne, he became embodied. He was susceptible to pain and to sickness. As I look out, I know some families, there's just certain family members here because your other halves or some of your kids are home sick. Pretty sure Jesus probably got sick. I think he knows exactly what it feels like to be weary, to have limitations. He knows what it feels like to be misunderstood, misunderstood. And to be hated. I almost like to be hated more than misunderstood. Because at least you know where you stand if you're hated. But if you say something and someone misunderstands, it's so painful. Especially for a preacher. Oh my gosh. Jesus also knows the elation of a warm, firm hug. And a love. And he knows the elation of love shared among friends, among family. He knows what it felt like to have the weight of the world on his shoulders and to feel abandoned and betrayed. He knows what it feels like to grieve the loss of a loved one when his cousin was beheaded for ministering his gospel. And he knows what it felt like for his final exhalation, for his life to leave him on a cross, watching his mother and his friends mourn while they're powerless to do anything for him. He knows what it means to hurt and to suffer. And he knows you, not at a distance, but intimately. And and I hope that you and I can take comfort that when we pray, and even when we don't have the willpower to pray sometimes, he knows what you're going through, and he's with you. And that's the kind of king I can bow to. That's the kind of king it is very easy to worship the one who bends and washes feet and still is sovereign on the throne. The third and final verse of O Holy Night now challenges us into a new way of living. Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. These words come directly from the gospels and early Christian letters. The call to love one another is repeated verbatim in 1 John, John, and Matthew's gospel. But this particular thought that his law is love comes directly from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 12. In everything, therefore, treat people in the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. I love how the song takes the good news of salvation in verse 1, the fact that Jesus is born to rescue the world that's stuck in sin and pining like that train headed towards destruction. And then it takes the good news in verse 2 and tells us it's available to everyone who has faith. Jesus can reach anyone, even pagan magi, anyone who's open like the magi, but he won't force you to believe. Even if you're a homegrown Bible expert in the house of King Herod, he won't force you to believe. And verse three now takes this good announcement and tells us that part of salvation is living into the new life available to us. We're to receive the love of Jesus and then reflect it back out into the world. Uh, loving one another isn't just this generic feeling that we get in, as the moral of the story of all the kind of Christmas movies out there, this generic Christmas spirit kind of stuff the bible doesn't preach a christmas spirit once a year that encourages us to to smile at the clerk at the at the grocery store to put a little extra coin in the salvation army you know bell ringer thing i I don't see the the, the, you know the third john and then the uh the first epistle to this christmas spirit like that's not in the bible Scripture tells us that the story is a very specific and active love. It tells of a God who exists in perfect relationship as Father, Son, and Spirit. And out of that overflowing love, he decides to create. And he makes me and he makes you out of the overflow of his love. And it tells us that he endured rejection and abuse and infidelity. Jesus got ghosted and outright rebellion from his creation And after all of that, he goes to even more extreme lengths to rescue us. He emptied himself and became one of us, dwelt among us, was rejected, died at our hands, and then gave himself to be the sacrifice for us. That's a very specific, personal, active love. And he calls us to a form of that love as well. He calls us to work towards biblical shalom, which is true lasting peace that includes equity and justice and fairness for all. Shalom is this tangible peace that works to see the release of captives and the oppressed, whether by sin or social structures, set free. There are allusions to this type of shalom in every book of the Bible, every single book of the Bible, but a classic text is Isaiah 58, 6 through 7. In this section of the Bible. The people have been going through religious motions like fasting and worshiping and sacrificing on special days, but the Lord is upset with them and says, this is the kind of fast I'm after, to break the chains of injustice, to get rid of exploitation in the workplace, to free the oppressed and to cancel debts. What I'm interested in is seeing you do this, sharing your food with the hungry, inviting the homeless poor into your homes, putting clothes on the shivering ill-clad, and being available to your own families. Specific love, Jesus love, shalom. Now what's fascinating to me about O Holy Night is that when the French Catholic religious elites found out that O Holy Night was not written by two genuine Christians, and one of them being a Jewish person, they tried to ban it. Oh, you know what happens when you try and ban a good thing. Look at Prohibition. No, it's good. It was too late. Let's scrub that one from the recording. It was too late. Truth and beauty burst through, not only in France, but it came to the United States. And a certain man, a professor, and a music critic named John Sullivan Dwight found it. He was an abolitionist fighting against slavery in the South, and he saw a clarion call in this part of the song. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. And so we see yet another strength in this amazing song, the melding of the social and the individual, the political and the personal, the public and the private. The call is not only to receive Jesus, but to obey him, in living out his kingdom work. Now, this might seem just like a great place to end, partly because it's just thematically great and you're tired, and I, I will end real soon, but I think to end here would be folly. Even to receive the love of Jesus and to respond to his call to love one another is not in itself adequate. We are incapable of living this out with any sort of lasting success without the daily sustaining power of jesus and so we close by giving thanks and praying with gusto sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we let all within us praise his holy name christ is the lord praise his name forever his power and glory evermore proclaim because we're powerless without him his power and glory evermore proclaim, because he is king and no one else is. His power and glory evermore proclaim, because he is worthy, and his reign is everlasting, and because in him is life, and without him, there is only darkness clothed in good intentions. Do you pray with me? Lord, indeed you are worthy, and I am so thankful That Chapeau and Adams were tasked with writing this song and these lyrics. Few truer things have been sung except for the scriptures themselves. I thank you that your truth and your good news can't be locked up. Can't be suppressed and held down. But it bursts forth from the lips of people that the church wouldn't see as worthy. As recognized by people like Magi and Shepherds and a teenage couple, Mary and Joseph. And I thank you that that means it's also available to us to the people that we love and long to know your love. Thank you for the tangible nature of your salvation. That's more than just just a release from guilt and shame, but it's an invitation to participate in your work, the living God of of redeeming and transforming this world. So I pray you would pour out assurance of salvation for my sisters and brothers who call in your name, even now for the first time, if that's the case. And I pray you would also pour out creativity in our thinking and in our living to be bearers of shalom in our world and lord we humbly admit that we need your power to do all of those things and any of those things minute by minute day by day for our whole lives you are our king and we praise your holy name your power and your glory evermore may we proclaim amen